Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your, We're hosts. your hosts. Oh, sorry. We're your hosts. We're, We're both your hosts. Your hosts. <laughs> Me and you, Jewel. We're That's hosts. Lauren. <laughs> And I'm Julia, and we're your hosts. And welcome to the show, everybody. How's it I'm going? Just, I'm just so excited, and I, I can't stop myself. I'm just so pumped. This is, I am in the presence, virtually, of a superstar. A trivia superstar. A trivia a superstar, which superstar. I would say is better. This is the most yeah. famous person we've ever had on the show. Easily, by far. And... Was also one of the last people we lovingly embraced at the last public gathering of 2020. <laughs> Indeed. In Geek Bowl. Mm-hmm. Today, we are honored to be joined by Mastermind, the historian, Muffy Morocco. Welcome, Muffy. Welcome, Muffy. Welcome, Muffy. Well, yes, that's me. Thank you. <laughs> We're so happy to have you on the show. How are you? How are things? We're so excited to have you on as a TV superstar. I, I am excited to be on. I, you know, sometimes I recycle facts that I have learned from you on the TV. <gasps> I learn things. You know, I like to learn. No, I'm great. I'm here in Los Angeles. You know, it's just chugging along through this time that we live in. <laughs> Tell us about God your bless. pups. Yeah, I, ha- I, I, I am uh, the crazy lady with three dogs, mm-hmm. the eldest of whom is Rocco Morocco, the, okay. middle, the middle of whom is Rex, and the baby mm-hmm. of whom is Bologna Sandwich. Bologna Sandwich <laughs> is, a hand to God, the best dog name <laughs> I have ever heard in my whole life. It was always my mother's like, um, like speculative, like a celebrity baby name where she just, you know, dismissively said, <laughs> like, yeah, they named their kid something like Bologna Sandwich. I love it. And I was just like, there, there we go. That's his name. It works. Your dogs are also very, very cute. I have seen them on social media, and they are. they're just precious babies. And you they take are. great photos with them, like your they're- Christmas card photo, I think, <laughs> where there's like the three of you with like the that, fade that out. Pretty, yeah, professionally done. I had like the like the black, like looking off into the stars, like mm. profile of us, mm. because you know, what, what else can a single lady do except take <laughs> glamour shots with her dogs? That's it. That Live that is in what the I dream. Living the dream. Uh, that's what we all aspire to be, honestly, Muffy. <laughs> and then you have it framed and put in your apartment and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you never date again. <laughs> I would say you're better off. Uh, <laughs> but you're not just here to tell us about your stardom and your dogs. You are also here to tell us a little something that we can learn about. Because learning is fun. Yes. It is fun. I'm here today to talk about my favorite Civil War general, one of my favorite Americans ever, Mm. Ulysses S. Grant. Grant, 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 the country's calling. Goodbye, Andy, you must go. Uh, I admittedly have not, I don't know that much about Ulysses, uh, our boy Yuli, as I'm going to call him from here on out. (laughs) I'm not sure anybody um, <laughs> ever call, anybody ever dared call them Yuli. Well, uh, I'll be the first. Uh, <laughs> I, I the only thing I remember is like from elementary school, and like I I know very little. So this is this is an exciting moment for me. And I know very lot because I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> yes, but you, you, Lucy says Grant. Uh, you might know him from the fifty dollar bill. You might know him as the person who was buried in Grant's tomb. You might know him from episode 36. Generally speaking, it's very good. It is very good. Thank you, Muffy. I love what other people (laughs) pre-reference episodes that we did. It's it's delightful. Um, Yes. And so in in terms of what you could call him, yes, you could call him Ulysses. He was also Ulysses to friends or Sam, like Sam Grant to friends. His wife called him Dodo or Dodie. But as a child, he was mocked as useless. (gasps) Yes. So that's Lauren, rude. Okay. You can call him what you want. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, the man's dead. So that's a fair point. So <laughs> let me actually start. I want to start with the life of Ulysses S. Grant closer to the end than the beginning. So I'm going to start May 6th, 1884. This is after the war, after the presidency, after he has traveled the world. He is basically retired, living on the Upper East Side of New York City. And he invested in his son's banking firm because it's the Gilded Age. It's what mm-hmm. you do. He's mm-hmm. basically now a millionaire on paper. Uh, just sort of like hanging out, riding carriage, that kind of thing. 
But it turns out that it wasn't actually an investment firm. It was a Ponzi scheme. <gasps> oh, it was no. real. So he walks into the office on May 6th, 1884. His son, Buck, who was running the firm, tells him there's no money left. War had <gasps> absconded with everything. He was left completely destitute. He had the money that was in his pocket. So he goes out of the house that morning, a millionaire in the 1880s, walks home that evening. He has $80 in his pocket. And his wife, Julia, has $130. Oh, and that my is, God. Yeah. So uh, a stranger ends up sending them a check for $500 with a note that read, General, I owe you this for Appomattox. And that sort of sees them through the immediate crisis. Uh, and then he doesn't know basically what else to do with himself because it's he is about 60 years old. And he's he also had given up his military pension in order to become president because mm. he quit mm. the army mm-hmm. rather than retired. So he basically has no income. Um. He is offered $500 to write articles for something called the Century Magazine. He's offered $500 a piece for four articles, uh, which is, you know, uh, not a lot. I mean, even mm-hmm. then it was about $13,000. Oh, okay. Picks up, picks up, you know, a piece, right? But it's still not enough if you've got like an Upper East Side townhouse and you're yeah. living oh, yeah. swanky-like. Um, so he starts writing. He writes these four articles about some of his battles. Around the same time, he bites into a peach. And he thought, at first there was a bee on it. He feels an immense pain in his throat. What? But he puts off seeing a doctor. Oh, yes. This is this cliffhangers, Lauren. Drama. I'm, I am. We are starting with the drama. It's, I know. Starting with the I drama. I am literally on the edge of my seat. Okay. So the magazine then offers him, he's written these four articles. He kind of enjoys it. He gets into, because he wasn't a writer, didn't think there was any interest in doing it. Um, he didn't think anybody would want to hear from him, even though he was the winning general and a former president. And like, yeah. he's like, oh, other people have written about it. Like his former assistant, Adam Badeau, had written memoirs and all these things. So the magazine offers him basically a 10% royalty, no advance, no guarantee. But he's like, that's that's income. That's more than I've been making. So he uh, is going to agree to do it, but he's not the best businessman, Ulysses mm. S. Grant. So he asks a good friend of his who happens to have some publishing experience, Mark Twain. Get out. And you can learn more about Mark Twain in episode 41, A Talented and Crotchety Old Man. It's very good. It's very good. He's so crotchety. <laughs> he's so crotchety. <laughs> yes. So Mar- uh, Mark Twain, they ha- they're both not very good at business. Um, mm. Eventually, the publishing company will go out of business, but... Twain had just started it to publish his brand new book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mm. So uh, basically, Twain and Grant had met some years earlier, um, you know, struck up a friendship. Twain was a little starstruck. He just thought Grant was so cool. Um, So when he hears about this deal, the 10% of, you know, and like no advance, no nothing, he says, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically, he sees what the opportunity is, is that, I believe the only president prior to that who had written a memoir at that point was James Buchanan, who was a loser. Yeah. <laughs> and so nobody who wants to read that. So basically it would have been not just a president, but the civil, you know, winning Civil War general and just someone who, you know, led a very interesting life. So he jumps at the opportunity. Um, he scoffed at it, saying it's something they would offer any unknown Comanche Indian whose book they thought might sell 3,000 or 4,000 copies. He was very, he was very uh, crotchety about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> so he asks, may I publish it? Uh, Grant at first is like, oh, I can't tell the other people no. And he's like, come on, this is money, right? So mm. uh, he offered either 20% of sales or 70% of profits. And Grant, being not the best businessman, but a very sweet fella, he takes 70% of profits. He doesn't want them to have paid him if they didn't make money. <laughs> oh, my God. Even the 20% of sales was the better deal. <laughs> So he takes the slightly less generous deal, and that's basically how you end up penniless during the Gilded Age. Yeah. Um, so he starts writing over that summer, but in October 1884, if you remember, he's having increased throat pain. He finally sees a doctor and is diagnosed with terminal throat cancer. Oh, my God. So now he is writing against the clock. So it's he had been a, originally a pipe smoker and then a cigar smoker. Sometimes during mm. a battle, he'd smoke up to like and chew on like 20 cigars a day. Um, but so he's realizing that. now it's he's got, yeah he's got some time is running out as well as he's writing. Um, there is a you know a rumor that Twain wrote it, somebody else wrote it, or you mm. know somebody else was involved. He did have help with fact checking and editing, but he wrote the manuscript. It's in his own handwriting. It's in his oh, okay. pencil handwriting. It is literally written every word by himself. Um, there was some editing. Um, that's about it, and some fact checking. But he wrote all of it. 
Um, he only makes it through uh, his the war from his life through the war. But the mm-hmm. first line of it is a corker. My family is American and has been for generations in all its branches, direct and collateral. Wow. He's, very, he's very straightforward. Yeah. But uh, a lot of people have praised the style. It's a nice, straightforward style. He just describes his life. He is very descriptive. He was born in Ohio, kind of near Cincinnati, April 27th, 1822. It means he's a Taurus. Um, yeah, I can see stubborn. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, his uh, father was a tanner. His name was Jesse Root Grant, and his mother was named Hannah Simpson Grant. And she was just sort of reserved, you know, dutiful, you know, wife in the 1800s kind of lady. Mm. Uh, his real name was Hiram Ulysses Grant, if you've ever heard this. So mm-hmm. the name came about all the grandparents, all the family put names in a hat and they drew out Hiram and Ulysses and that's how it ended up. But he was always called Ulysses or Ulyss or useless or whatever <laughs> by other people. Um, Hiram's a real whiny name. You know what I mean? It is. It's, yeah. You know, like you get you your, know. yeah, you're a real like tattletale if your name's Hiram. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I am Hiram. And yeah, yeah, Lucy's <laughs> exactly. point, you got the mythology behind you all of Oh, that. yeah. Powerful. Uh, well, and unfortunately, the, the congressman who nominated him to go to West Point, because basically uh, his father, who was a, you know, good, good old fashioned thrifty Yankee, um, <laughs> wanted him to get a college education, but for free. So he mm-hmm. gets sent to the new, relatively new uh, military academy, but you get nominated by the congressman. He always just thought his name was Ulysses Grant and assumed his middle name was S. Simpson for his mother. Mm. So he, that's why he was Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, it didn't really bother Grant. And, you know, he got there. He tried to change it. But they're like, well, it's, this is what's on the paperwork. And then somebody pointed out that the name U.S. Grant is a little bit better for military career than the initials hug. <laughs> <laughs> Of it that I way. didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you're gonna walk around with like a trunk and says hug, where <laughs> you could be like U.S. Grant. Yeah, which is part of why it was Uncle Sam Grant. Why friends called him Sam or oh, okay, so that makes sense. Um, he was, uh, you know, at the military academy, pretty average student. He enjoyed math. Uh, he was very good at drawing, actually, and he was an excellent horseman. He was always uh, very fond of horses. He actually used to make money as a kid, like hauling things with horses. He just had one of those horse whisperer kind of ways. Mm. Um, he set a high jump record at the academy that was uh, not not beaten for decades. He was very good wow. on horses, yes. Um, he didn't want to stay in the army, but you had to at first when you had gone to the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he thought he might go back at some point and teach math there. That was about it. Unfortunately, his grades weren't very good, so he doesn't make it into the cavalry or the engineers. He ends up being in the infantry. But some of his fellow students while he was there were William Tecumseh Sherman, oh, wow. George Thomas, the hero of the Rock of Chickamauga, George McClellan, who had been head of the Union armies, James Longstreet, who was Robert E. Lee's right-hand man, and um, his be- the best man at Ulysses' wedding, Stonewall Jackson and George Pickett of Pickett's Charge. Basically, every general that was in the Civil War was there around then because they were the right age and had the military wow. history. So, yeah, it's always interesting when you think about the Civil War. These guys were These like, guys knew know, each co- other. They all went to college together. They, yeah. yeah. They hazed um, each other and had their all of that, secret societies. All and Yeah, all that. I think the thing that I'm most surprised about is that he didn't seem, at least at this point in his life, very ambitious. He... he Sorry, was not ever. <laughs> <laughs> he really wasn't. He was. He was. He did not. He was not interested really in like the college education. Like he kept. He said he was wishing that like they. At the time, there was talk of shutting down the military academy. It was seen as a sort of snooty European mm. thing to have a military academy and a standing army and. And he was like eagerly reading the newspaper to be like, I hope they shut this place down. Like, he, go home. <laughs> he also. Uh, when he got his uniform, he got to go back for a fa- like a break at one point, got to go back home and he wore his fancy uniform and uh, he's walking around town like, look at me in my swanky, you know, military uniform. And he caught like a stable boy making fun of him. They have like chalked up their pants to look the same way. And he basically became a committed slob thereafter. He was like, oh, wow. He was like, I'm not going to get into fancy uniforms because he felt so <laughs> embarrassed about being made fun of. Oh, oh, my God. What a sensitive boy. He was a sensitive boy. He didn't. He wouldn't. I mean, if you want to talk about sensitive. Uh, no, he uh, didn't like to eat red meat. Um, mm. the, on- the only time he got incredibly angry during a battle of the war was when he saw a man beating a horse. 
Oh, um, yeah. No, you don't want to beat a horse in front of no. Ulysses. No. So he was, a, he was a very sensitive guy. Um, his roommate was a guy named Fred Dent, who was actually from St. Louis, Missouri, which is where Grant gets stationed after the war. And he goes to have dinner with, uh, you know, the Dent family. And he meets Julia Dent Grant. Yes. And they fall in love. So she is a little bit younger. She's about four years younger. Um, she's a little frivolous, you know, a little bit like <laughs> girly girl, but uh, very good humored, you know, like warm um, and, you know, sort of welcoming all of that. Mm-hmm. They're falling for each other, but um, he's there's now war with Mexico is about to happen is imminent. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're going to be sent down to Texas and then eventually into Mexico. He gets one final night of leave, but it's a stormy night. Pouring buckets, raining cats and dogs and other things. Um, and But he had a suspicion, uh, not a suspicion. He had a superstition, which was he would hated to retrace his steps. He would not like do a U-turn. He just would always keep going or go around or keep going the straight way. He just Weird. thought it was bad luck, right? So it's this terribly stormy night. He probably should turn back, but he thinks that's bad luck. So he pushes on. He like fords this stormy river gets to the house completely drenched and manages to propose to her before he has to leave for Mexico the next day oh, or Texas sweet. at the time. Yes. It turns out he's gone four years. Oh, <laughs> oh no. It, was, it wasn't easy to get around then. You had to like, no. walk to Mexico, right? They didn't have trains. <laughs> Can you imagine, Lauren? <laughs> we're like, we're just going to, we're going to walk to Mexico. Yeah, if I mean, you what am I doing? No, no, no. If you and I had to walk to Canada, even <laughs> oh. though it's, even though it's, you know, it's three right hours there. by car, how the hell, how long is it going to take us to walk to Canada? A week with, and a half. With stuff. You got stuff. You got like yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, you know what? They didn't have TV. <laughs> so, Less you know, what else are they doing? You know? Less distractions. They're just, just like, you know, if only I could watch TV. Instead, it doesn't exist. I will have to walk to Mexico. Yeah. It's a time Those killer, options, you know, guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they, they are happily married the rest of their lives. They end up with four children. Uh, Fred Buck, who was Ulysses Jr. He's called Buckeye for being born in Ohio. Nellie mm. and Jesse. Um, Julia uh, was slightly cross-eyed. She's something called strabismus. <gasps> so she wasn't exactly a beauty. Um, as he was becoming famous during the Civil War, she looked into maybe trying to get some kind of surgery to correct it, and they said it was basically too late in life. And he forbade her. He said, <gasps> did I not see you and fall in love with you with these same eyes? Aww. He was a softie. He's sensitive. He was oh, that's sweet. Um, but back during the Mexican-American War, he ends up being a quartermaster, which is usually not a frontline position, but he is involved in basically every important battle. Um, even at the Battle of Monterey, they needed someone to go get ammunition, and he uh, got on a horse, got off the saddle, clung to the far side of the horse away from the enemy fire, <gasps> ran the gauntlet to go back and said, we need ammunition, and came back. Oh, my God. That's, so that's how good he was with horses. Horses trusted him. Oh, not me. Yeah. No, but they trusted <laughs> him. Um, but he actually did not support the, the Mexican-American War. He thought it was just unfair and basically bullying. Mm. Um but he's basically ends up being stuck in the army. There's no uh, teaching position at West Point. He gets stationed various places. They go from um, Sackett's Harbor up in New York State, Detroit. Mm. And then finally, he gets sent alone to Northern California. Um, the only way to get there was you had to go down. And rather than go around Cape Horn, which you can learn more about in episode 147, Come With Me and Escape. It's very good. <laughs> it's very but good. rather than do that, they would cross the Isthmus of Panama, which was easier than sailing all the way around South America, but people, hundreds of people died of disease doing that because mm-hmm. it was, there was yellow fevers and things like that. So he did not want to take family. He ends up um, crossing there, Northern California. It's very remote. Oh, yeah. It's very, it's, it's, oh, you know, yeah. that sort of border, like sort of Sasquatch country, like that border, mm-hmm. like, you know, like Oregon, like California kind of area. Um, so he's there, he's stuck there, no family. The, Baby boy Buck is born while he is away. Like mm-hmm. Julia sends him a tracing of the baby's hands on you know, a letter and it takes months for letters to come. And he's like crying and alone, which is where we now address the elephant in the room. Hello, elephant. Whether or not Grant was a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I, mean, I did he's, not. He's already I didn't know smoking like 12 cigars a day. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I feel like the, the prevailing... Um, thing about him that 
his, the rumor that has endured was that he just he just drank all the time that he was drunk in battle that he was drunk as president mm-hmm. that all this but you know a functioning alcoholic <laughs> i mean clearly i couldn't do what? those things drunk <laughs> right i mean i just wind up ordering things on amazon that i regret <laughs> exactly me too right but uh so basically he was often maligned as a drunk um he was really by the standards of the day not that alcoholic this mm. was like an era when people drank with breakfast or took mm-hmm. it as medicine or basically were blitzed all day long. Um, in 1830, for instance, you know, when he's a child, the annual per capita consumption of alcohol in the United States was 7.1 gallons per year, right? Okay. Today it is oh 2.3 2. gallons. All right. Oh, wow. Okay. So by comparison, yeah, yeah. That is, and that's the average <laughs> per capita. <laughs> so there are people exceeding the 7.1. <laughs> Oof. And so, it's, so he was really not an habitual drinker. He was basically an emotional drinker. He would booze it up when he was sad and lonely. Basically, uh, he never drank when he was around his wife or family. Okay. He was also a lightweight. He would drink three <laughs> fingers worth of whiskey and he'd be like under the table. So there's a little bit of, I think, that like a, attitude that he wasn't like a good drinker. It was sort of dismissive in that way. Mm. And he was never proven to have been drunk when it mattered, you know, even days off or things like that. Um, they even, during the war, sent like the assistant secretary of war to sort of keep an eye on him. And the guy's like, no, no, he's a good guy. He's doing his job. He's fine. Yeah, yeah. So he was based, so that's that's the rumor that has persisted, which is, I think, is was an easy way to, to um, you know, put him down. Yeah. But he yeah. wasn't really much of a drunk, if especially by the standards of the day. They had to find something to, yeah, to exactly. say about yeah. it. But yeah. I, I have to say, and I'm sorry that, that everybody else can't see this, but Muffy has... A uh, a two D version of Ulysses S. Grant behind her, and he yes. is smoking. Yeah, that <laughs> and is... I don't mean I don't mean pipe smoke. I mean this man has a smolder on his face that yeah he could get any gal in St. Louis or yeah. Ohio or New York for that matter or Northern California. Yeah, he's a real you know Civil War hero. I'd like to wink. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think that's a quilf. I think, right? (laughs) General, general, gilf. (laughs) Gilf, he's a gilf. That's easier. Thank you. He's a gilf. He's a great beard. Great beard. Yeah, he's got, he's got like like a young Clint Eastwood from, from, from this book. Mm -hmm. I was going to say like a rakish cowboy kind of look. He has a very, uh, if you look at some of the young photos of him, especially before he grew the beard, he had a very mm. like young Robin Williams or young Kevin Klein kind of vibe. Mm. I wouldn't kick him out of bed. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, although when he started the military academy, he was five foot one. He did end up oh. growing to be about five foot nine over the time <laughs> he was there. <laughs> wow. Wow. Like it's eight inches. Two people make it fun of him then. I mean, not that, not that, not having height is bad but you know you're entering like the army life and yeah it very seems like it seems yeah. like you might be disadvantaged at that point at yes, five foot one was, well and it was very much that he felt like a like a frontier boy you know yeah. mm-hmm. he was from ohio which was like a new state at that time and <laughs> <laughs> wasn't from somewhere like massachusetts mm-hmm. so <laughs> So yes, he felt a little out of place there. But yeah, so he was he, he was a handsome man. He was. Mm. Um, so he's stationed in California for a few years. He basically tries to make money outside of being in the army. He tried to grow potatoes and the field got washed out. Oh. <laughs> he tried to bring down ice from Canada and sell it. And the bo- boat got stuck in San Francisco Bay and all the ice melted. it's just he's like the opposite of a good businessman and that it's just like everything is like a sad trombone like (laughs) this poor guy can't do anything right no man so he is really he's very depressed he's accused of being drunk on duty which like he may have been but it it's kind of murky his friend said look no go to get court-martialed you'll you will be acquitted basically Mm -hmm. whatever it was that he was supposed to be paymaster or something it was like it was fine you know whatever he didn't really want to stay in the army either so he decided he didn't want to fight it but that's why those rumors of drunkenness sort of persist okay because he leaves under this cloud um so you know he doesn't have like a healthy relationship with alcohol but it's by no means something that like was part of his everyday life Mm -hmm. so he decides you know screw this goes back uh he gets as far as new york and he has no money 
and oh. he calls upon a friend from the academy, Simon um, Bolivar Buckner, who lends him some moolah, and so he can get back home. Gets back to St. Louis with the wife and kids. He builds his own house. He builds a log house, basically, himself, cutting down the, the logs and spackling it together and all that. His wife's father, who was a slave owner, had a plantation he called Whitehaven. So <laughs> sort of mock- mockingly, <laughs> mockingly, Ulysses puts a sign up at his little like lumpy log cabin and calls it a hard scrabble farm. Aww. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> um, but he basically he tries to work in real estate and he's too nice to collect the rents. He, you know, ends up selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis. He pawns his gold watch to buy Christmas presents for his family. <laughs> and he did inherit. I know. And he it's inherited very a slave. O'Henry. It's very yeah, O'Henry. It's very O'Henry. And he inherited a slave from his father-in-law uh, who was a, a man, a grown man, who would have been probably worth $1,000 at the time. And he actually set him free rather than sell him, even though he could have used the money because he did not believe in slavery. His father, Ulysses S. Grant's father, was a noted abolitionist. Okay. Julia's mm. father was a very proud slave owner. Mm. There was always a little tension there in the family. Yeah, I can imagine that. Like, Ulysses Grant's father actually knew, like, John Brown and the Brown family. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. Because there were, like, 12 people in the 19th century. They all knew Yeah, each other. I mean, eh, fewer people yeah. then. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he ends up having to ask for a job back in the family leather store, which is now in Galena, Illinois. The, his boss will be his baby brother, who's like 15 years younger. Oh. Goes back. It's like he goes in. He doesn't like even care. He just sort of sits in like the store and they'll be like, well, how much does that cost? He's like, I don't know, like $5? Like <laughs> <laughs> basically just getting by, which is when Lincoln is elected and civil war breaks out. Mm. So okay. Grant ends up helping the town organize their volunteers. They say, you could be our captain. He's like, well, I was in the, a captain in the regular army. Now with volunteers, I should have a higher rank. Mm. So he goes down to try and get a position, and they ignore him in Illinois. And he goes to Ohio, and George McClellan won't even, he sits in like the waiting room all day, and George McClellan won't even see him. Basically, Ugh, this typical. Rumor, yeah, the rumor of him being a loser just won't go away. And George mm. McClellan was a little snob. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. snobby. Yeah. So he's doing paperwork, helping like, you know, the war cause, getting the men mustered in. M-U-S-T-E-R-E-D, not M-U-S-T-A-R-D. Mm, and, okay, uh, good to know. Finally, they have this troublemaking unit, the regiment, the 21st Illinois, who are like not obeying rules and just running wild and like stealing chickens in the neighborhood and that kind of thing. You know, like 19th century troublemakers. Frat. The frat boys, boys yeah. of the <laughs> Illinois men. Yeah, yeah they mm-hmm. kept shouting, nerds! <laughs> That might not have happened. Um, he, so it's great. He goes in. He's very matter of fact guy. You know, doesn't care about like saluting and all, you know, all that kind of thing. But he goes mm-hmm. in and he just walks in, says, go to your quarters. And then there's a loud mouth that comes up and he's like, you can't tell me what to do. Blah, blah, blah. And Grant just simply hauls off and decks him. <gasps> Sends the guy to the ground and says, go to your quarters. And they all went to their tents. <laughs> nice. I love um, it. So he very quickly, this is his first time really in command. He really quickly learns what it takes. Um, his first time out leading men, he was incredibly nervous. He said he describes how his like, you know, heart was rising in his throat. Mm. They get to this encampment where they're supposed to engage in battle and they're gone. Oh. They have taken off in the middle of the night. <gasps> and he realizes that the enemy was just as scared of him as he was of the enemy. Oh, and this okay. is now like a principle that sort of guides him, which is, like I've got guys with guns too. <laughs> like, <laughs> I I I can be fearsome. So he ends up, uh, you know, he's out in the Western Theater, like Illinois, down the Mississippi kind of stuff. Um, his first small skirmish is 1861. He gets promoted to brigadier general from colonel. Um, in 1862, the battles of Fort Henry and Donelson, which is where he earns the nickname of Unconditional Surrender Grant. So the commander that is left in charge of the forts is his pal, Simon Bolivar Buckner, who had lent him the money. Mm. Oh, yeah. And Buckner sends him a message through the lines. says like, what are your terms? And he says, no terms. Unconditional surrender are my only terms. I propose to move on your works immediately. Uh, so the, his friend has no choice but to be like, okay, all right. all my men. Like, okay. But it's very sweet. Uh, when Buckner comes out, he greets him like a friend. And he says, I understand you're away from your family. If you need any money now, let me know. Mm. Mm. oh that's nice yeah they were very it was weird they could wage horrible war against each other and be like hey buddy hey pal yeah such a strange time yes uh so he basically keeps 
wait, you know, winning battles, basically engaging in battles, while in the East, it's either they are flip-flopping between different commanders, they're losing battles, or they don't follow up on victories. He's in uh, charge at the Battle of Shiloh, which was, at that point, the bloodiest uh, battle that had ever been waged in the um, mm. basically the Americas. Um, something at that time, like it's you know compared to the rest of the war, but it was like seven thousand casualties or something. Um, they were sort of taken unawares that day uh, by the the Confederate army. Um, the first day is horrific. You know, it's the raining at night, and Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman, says to him, like you know, it's been such a terrible day. You know, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we, Grant? And just Grant just says, yeah, but we'll lick him tomorrow. And in mm. fact, he did. <laughs> he never, wow. he he would never lose that like confidence and ability to like move forward in battle. Mm-hmm. He was he never faltered. He was never uncertain about it. Um, he is successful in the siege of Vicksburg, which was like a fortress overlooking the Mississippi River. And basically, what he does there that's really unusual is like he sort of part of it being that he doesn't like to retrace his steps. He tries coming from the north, and there's big bluffs. You can't go that way. And he cut, then there's a river, and you can't really go from there because they have big guns pointed that way. And then he's sort of like, well, why can't I go from the east? Just because it's like, you know, land where they are. So he sh- like sails, they run the gauntlet, they sail past Vicksburg, come at it from the south, attack to the east, get rid of the capital of Jackson, Mississippi, and then just head towards Vicksburg and just lay siege. And Because wow. it was undefended because they were defending from the river. And what he did there that was unusual was he didn't he cut his supply lines, which you never do in army. You're supposed to feed your army. And he realized there was plenty of, you know, hogs and chickens and things in the area and he could feed his army that way. So that's how mm. he managed to get what was basically the last linchpin in the center of the Mississippi River. And he freed up the entire so he freed up the Mississippi River and it cuts the Confederacy in two. Because wow. like mm-hmm. Texas and like Arkansas were where they were getting a lot of their food from. Like they weren't battle sites, but that's where like the cattle were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, he is like the only one who's fighting and winning battles. He goes <laughs> wins in Chattanooga. Uh, he's promoted to lieutenant general, which is the highest rank anyone has achieved since General Washington. Oh, um, wow. And is appointed to he's basically a four star general at this point and becomes head of the armies and moves back east to take charge against Robert E. Lee. So in 1864, he fights against Lee. Um, he sends a, you know, and every other person who had battled Lee, every other general basically would face him, lose, run away with their, you know, tail between their legs. They'd regroup, they'd hire a new general. Like, it was a sort of repeating pattern. It's Lee, just like Pokemon, Lauren. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> just like it, just like it. Um, yeah. But Grant does not do that. He just keeps fighting and he sends a telegram to Lincoln. I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer, which it does. It takes the, more, <laughs> the rest of basically the next year. There's a siege. Finally, he they um, make a break for it at the end. There's a few last battles and then there's Lee's eventual surrender in 1865 at Appomattox. Um, so Lee uh, shows up in like his perfect dress uniform he has like a new clean uniform because he's expecting he's going to be taken prisoner and like tried for treason and all these things and grant shows up in like a mud spattered like private's uniform it's like this complete <laughs> contrast between the two men um but grant offers incredibly generous terms he was actually inc- very popular in the south after the war oh, so wow. he he paroled the men rather than made them prisoners he let officers keep their sidearms and horses and basically when they go out um after the surrender like some of his soldiers start celebrating and they want to set off you know cannons and things and he goes no 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 like no celebrating he even forbids that because he appreciates the effort that they had put in um but you know one of the other accusations against him is that he was like a butcher that he was heedless with his men in battle which Mm. is not true because he took vicksburg he barely had any casualties and he took it and fighting against lee he had equal casualties to lee but part of that what was important was one lee couldn't really replace his men and the north Mm. did have more right Because this was a civil war. It wasn't about like territory. It was about willingness to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other important thing is not only was it the willingness to fight, but it was more men were dying of disease in camp than yeah. were dying in battle. Mm-hmm. And it was an incredibly costly war. So yeah. uh, for every three soldiers killed in battle, five died of disease. Oh, wow. Um, and it was, um, so it's 110,000 Union soldiers died in battle, 224,000 died of disease. Oh, my gosh similar almost in the in the confederate um and in terms of cost around the beginning of the war is about 1.5 million dollars a day in 1860 
Oh my gosh. Then it was about $3.5 million a day, and the American government became the first government to spend more than $1 billion in a single year. Oh my Congratulations, God. Congratulations, America. <laughs> Woo, we're, yeah, you we're did number it. one. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yay. Uh, so, uh, so yes, yeah, so even though he there were many casualties in battle, it was also with the goal of ending the war, which is mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you're there for, right? Um and one of his uh one of the union soldiers described Grant in this way, which was Grant habitually wears an expression as if he had determined to drive his head through a brick wall and was about to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want that on my tombstone. Right. Damn. <laughs> well, that's where the smoldering look comes from. He's just yeah, exactly. Trying to go to dive as you know. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so he was really a, a you know competent general. He yeah, was, could take risks. He could be decisive. He was very calm under fire. Um, at one point, like a cannonball lands near him, and he just sort of looks up and goes, "Well, see what you know. See what like they're using. I want to know what they have." Like he doesn't like flinch. <laughs> um, and he, but he was also like a devoted family man. When they were in the siege of Petersburg, leading up to you know the final months of the war. Julia and the the kids came to stay with him and he would be writing military dispatches and the two younger children would just be like crawling all over him in his desk and he was just like (laughs) la 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 they'd be like you know under his desk and then uh, yes so he gets through the war he ends up becoming um, president (laughs) uh, after Andrew Johnson Um, he doesn't get to that in the memoirs he was and it's something where he was until recently uh, maligned as one of the worst presidents but mm-hmm. there's some rehabilitation of his presidency since then there admittedly were many scandals none of which implicated him he was, sure. he was too sweet and dumb to like be good at financial <laughs> scandals you know like but there was like the whiskey ring a gold panic things like that he was just not a politician but in many ways he was yeah. the only person who kind of could have held the country together mm-hmm. at that point so he ran because yeah. Yeah, he from... was actually popular north and south yeah, yeah, exactly. Because of just his, just his personality and his reputation, it had nothing to do with like his abilities as a politician or whatever. Yeah, and he was very bad at the politician part yeah. of it all. Exactly. <laughs> but he had some great people like Hamilton Fish with his Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have some successes, like the passage of the Fifteenth Amendment. Um, they he crushes the Klan by using the federal army when state governments wouldn't do it. Yeah, hell um, yeah. And uh, he um, safeguarded the rights of African Americans to vote. He appointed the first um, African-American um, foreign minister to Haiti. Uh, basically, he was very much in favor of civil rights for all. Um, and uh, unfortunately, after his two terms, which was the standard at the time, you know, and sort of as set by George Washington, uh, they elect Rutherford B. Hayes, which was that crazy tie. And part of the negotiation is basically reconstruction is going to end. So everything mm-hmm. falls apart. Oh, uh, yeah. Um so after that, it's sort of awkward that he's he's very young. At that point, he was the youngest president thus elected. He was only like 46. Mm. So he's still kind of young, doesn't have an army yeah. anymore. So they don't know what to do with him. <laughs> he and Julia <laughs> decide to go on a tour around the world. Oh, so that's they, what I do. Yeah. You know, get, get your wife, get your kids, see the world. Get your trunk exactly. with U.S. Grant stamped on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, admittedly slowly, you know, they, they didn't have to yeah. walk everywhere, but there were, it was like boats and things. Now they go, they go basically most of Western Europe. They go through Egypt and the Holy Land. They go uh, through Russia and India, China, Japan. They end, it's about um, two years, two and a half years that mm-hmm. they're out. Um, they end up skipping Australia because they're getting a little homesick. But everywhere he went, he's saluted by, you know, he you know throngs of regular people who are just thrilled to see like a regular guy who succeeded so much mm. but he also like dines with queen victoria and the kaiser wow it's like it's the hobnob with royalty and regular folks alike um wow. so he comes back is 1880 they sort of try and get him to maybe run for president again doesn't really take off so that's 1880 84 he's just doing his thing in new york city until he loses all his money. Mm-hmm. So that's where we come back to where he's writing the memoirs. And there's a wonderful picture of him, which I have framed on my wall, big pretty frame, it's all matted and everything. Um, but it's Grant writing his memoirs. It's about a week, uh, less than a month, sorry, about before his death. He's all swaddled up and on this chair of the porch of this house in um, upstate New York. And he's um, writing by hand his memoirs. Mm-hmm. So he just writes every day, trying to get out as much as he can. He writes about 330,000 words in less than a year. By wow. hand. <laughs> Dang. 
he finishes the manuscript around like July 18th, 19th of 1885. So just a little over a year since he lost the money and first felt the pain in his throat. He dies four days after finishing the manuscript. Wow. He, was, he had also lost something like 40 pounds. He was unable to mm-hmm. do any eat or drink basically by the yeah. end. Uh, he could only communicate by written notes. He could not even speak. And one of the notes he left behind says, the fact is, I think I am a verb instead of a personal pronoun. A verb is anything that signifies to be, to do, to suffer. I signify all three. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. He's a good writer. It's, I recommend the, the, they're long, but they're readable memoir, you know, mm-hmm. as a memoir. Mm-hmm. A lot of military history, but he's a very clear, straightforward style. You know, he tells some fun stories. He has a, a slightly wry sense of humor. And he tells a story about when he went to, he wanted a horse when he was a kid. And his father is like the good, like thrifty Yankee. And Ulysses is bad with money, right? Mm-hmm. So his father's like, all right, you can go, go buy the horse. Tell him you'll give him 20. And if he won't take that, say 2250. And if he won't take that, say 25. So Ulysses, young Ulysses shows up and he says to the guy, so Papa says, I'm to give you 20. And if you won't take that, I'm to give you 2250. If you won't take that, I'm supposed to give you 25. And he says, you can figure out what I paid for the horse. <laughs> Oh, bless him. He And he never learned. No. <laughs> no whammies. No whammies. Whammies. Yeah. Whammies. Yeah. Yeah, whammies. Uh, yeah. So he ends up, uh, they, so uh, Twain sends out salesmen to basically sell the book by subscription before it's even published. So he sort of knows that it's selling and he gets people to invest, you know, like put in the money beforehand. And there's like mm-hmm. the deluxe edition or the regular edition. They sell 350,000 copies, approximately, oh my God. which was about $450,000 in royalties for Julia. It, that would be equivalent to about $12 million today. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Oh, my so God. So he, he, he left her in good shape mm. in terms of, uh, you know, having written it basically to, to make sure that she was taken care of after having lost all the money. Um, mm. His funerals, uh, initial funerals, August 8th, 1885. There were about a million people that turned out in New York City. Uh, the procession was seven miles long. It took about five hours. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was, you know, like 60,000 people marching like the army. I mean, you know, different groups, oh, yeah. uh, veterans, all of that. And by his request, his pallbearers were equally divided between Union and Confederate generals. So wow. Sheridan and Sherman and Buckner and Johnston, two, two Union, two Confederate generals stand equally. And they carried um, him for seven miles? No, he was on he was a horse in the thing. Okay. I, think like, I was going to say, wow. That was the yeah. punishment. That was. <laughs> he got him in the end. Like, At least we're not walking to Mexico. Right? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and so they agreed to make the site um, for Grant's tomb. Mm-hmm. So they build, so they collect money for it. It's the um, largest private, like la- largest mausoleum in, I think, the Western Hemisphere, mm-hmm. certainly in North America. Um so they, we call it Grant's Tomb. It's actually not underground so much, but it's the largest mausoleum in North America. He did not want to be buried at West Point or Arlington National Cemetery because he wanted Julia buried by his side. Mm-hmm. And those are military only. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go to Grant's Tomb, which I have, and I've cried. Um, oh, I'm sure. It's a big, beautiful, you know, um, stone edifice. And, you know, it's this big bu- building with columns. And you go in and there's sort of an upper level that has some displays. And then down below are there two sort of I think they're red marble sarcophagi of them side by side. Um, And what I love is emblazoned above the entrance to the tomb is what was his campaign slogan from when he ran for presidency, which was, let us have peace. Oh, that's wonderful. And so there there concludes the story of Ulysses S. Grant. I didn't know. First of all, thank you, Muffy. That was wonderful. (laughs) Secondly, I didn't realize how emotionally charged this episode was going to be and i thank you for that that was great that was that was can i say very good that's why they call the historian lauren (laughs) oh yeah she's the historian the for sure (laughs) it's wonderful thank you so much that was great i just you know and i he he and lincoln had a wonderful relationship and you know i think it's just that he was a i love that he was just like regular guy (laughs) Yeah, loved, loved his wife, loved his kids. Could wage horrific war. Really, just didn't want to though. Yeah, just yeah. a reluctant hero for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Muffy, uh, I hear that you have a quiz for us. I do. I do. Ooh. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's hard to spin something off from this, but I decided sure. to go with 
True Blue, in honor of the color of the uniforms of the United States Army during the Civil War. Here are 10 questions involving the color blue. Excellent. Number one. Which artist had a notable blue period from 1901 to 1904, during which he produced such works as The Old Guitarist and Woman with Folded Arms? Number two. In which 1947 Academy Award-winning song is Mr. Bluebird on my shoulder? The film this song comes from combines live action, animation, and nostalgia for slavery during Reconstruction, and has never been released on home video. Question three. In the film version of The Devil Wears Prada, Miranda Priestly devastatingly dismisses Andy's lumpy blue sweater by describing fashion influence, noting that it's not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually what color? The name for this color comes from the Latin for the color of the sky. Question four. Making blue fireworks is a tricky proposition and it requires adding which metallic element to the mix. This element has the atomic number 29, is popular in electrical wiring, but only makes up 2.5% of an American one cent piece these days. Question five. A famed color matching system, which has been making design easier since 1963, named Classic Blue, or number 19-4052, as the color of the year for 2020. This company praised this shade of blue for, quote, instilling calm, confidence, and connection. This enduring blue hue highlights our desire for a dependable and stable foundation on which to build as we cross the threshold into a new era. Name this company devoted to consistent colors. Question six. In the beloved Monty Python sketch about a dead parrot, what species was the bird claimed to be? He wasn't dead, of course. Just merely pining for the fjords. Question seven. In which award-winning AMC TV show that ran from 2008 to 2013 was the major product at the center of the lead character's empire known as Blue Sky, Big Blue, Blue Magic, or Fring's Blue? Question eight. Elvis Presley covered and made a hit out of the song Blue Suede Shoes. However, it was written by and first recorded by which other performer often called the King of Rockabilly? He joined Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash as part of the 1956 Million Dollar Quartet that was recorded at Sun Records Studios on December 4th. Question number nine. Forever in blue jeans. The word denim comes from the French town of Nîmes. This fabric was from Nîmes or de Nîmes. But the durable fabric was especially popular with sailors from which northwestern Italian port city, leading to the nickname jeans for the blue trousers they sported. This city is also famed for pesto, salami, and Christopher Columbus. Question number 10. What marine bird with distinctive feet is native to the tropical regions of the Eastern Pacific Ocean, ranging from the Gulf of California to Peru? About half of all breeding pairs nest in the Galapagos Islands, and its slightly embarrassing name is probably derived from a Spanish word meaning stupid. We'll give everybody about a minute to think about it, and then Muffy will be back with our answers. That was a very good quiz. This there is are a couple a here that I quiz. 
There are a couple that I'm like, about. But, but that's why we're Julie a team. To help me out with this. <laughs> we're a team. We're so much better when we can answer questions together. <laughs> You're telling me. <laughs> I'm, I'm so much better when I write the questions myself. <laughs> <laughs> Question one. Which artist had a notable blue period from 1901 to 1904, painting things like the old guitarist and woman with folded arms? I'll let the art uh, lady take it. Uh, that is Pablo Picasso. See, uh, si, that is true. Or we, because he was in France. Yeah, that's true. I think yeah. Lauren has said before, like that poster of the old man with the guitar was on every college boy's dorm room wall in the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah. Made well, him I, you know, like he was really like introspective and like artistic. You know, really artistic. Yes, yes. This is he ha- was in a bit of a depression, so he painted mm-hmm. a lot of blue paintings, which apparently nobody really wanted a bunch of depressing blue paintings on their walls, so they didn't sell very well. It was followed by his much happier rose period, where he painted a lot of pinks and reds and orange, which is totally my vibe. (laughs) Question two. In which 1947 Academy Award-winning song is Mr. Bluebird on my shoulder? The film this song comes from combines live action, animation, and nostalgia for slavery during Reconstruction and has never been released on home video. Do you remember, Jewel? Because I totally yeah, blanked this on this. This is Zippity Doodah from uh, Song <laughs> oh, of the South. Yeah. Mm. It is. Uh, yes. Uh, Song of the South was based on the Uncle Remus tales of happy living down on the plantation. Um, little stories that are like fables featuring animals. And it inspired the ride Splash Mountain. Oh, oh. really? Yes. Splash I Mountain didn't know that. Song of the South. So there's, they, they've removed a lot of the markers of, sure. the, of the actual film. But you can hear Zippity Doodah playing while you wait in line endlessly. Oh, wow. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I do not enjoy the flume rides. No. Because really, I don't, if I wanted to sit around in like, you know, damp pants the rest of the day, I, you know. Exactly. Especially yeah. if you wore jeans. And if you were, if oh, you went to it. any theme park in the 90s, you were wearing jean shorts, most likely. You really <laughs> and were. And then That's it. if you went on a water ride early in the day, forget it. You were just no. chafing. You were chafing day. and sitting in damp jeans all day I long. Tr- I tried once to put like a garbage bag over myself and it no, mm. no. they it get it work. it gets in uh, no, no. <laughs> it's no good no taking it no uh question three in the film version of the devil wears Prada Miranda Priestly devastatingly dismisses Andy's lumpy blue sweater by describing fashion influence noting that it's not just blue it's not turquoise it's not lapis it's actually what color now this is one of my favorite movies and I and, and I don't know if Lauren happened to see it in the last couple. Of I months haven't seen it. I still haven't seen Lauren it. Lauren <laughs> still hasn't seen the Devil Wears Prada, even though I think that Miranda Priestly is one of her spirit animals. It's um, true. I know. I know the answer to this one, Lauren. Do you? Do you have a? My, my hazarded guess was Azure, um, <laughs> but I think I'm wrong. The answer is Cerulean. Cerulean. <laughs> I gotta see this movie. I I don't know how you haven't seen it. Take a I break know. from your British murder mysteries. Sit down for an hour and 42 minutes and know, watch right? the national treasure that is Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci in the Double Wars. Oh, yeah. I love the Tooch. I just, I don't know why I haven't. I just, <laughs> I'm so do sorry, Do you everyone. love fashion? Do you love do. Meryl Streep? Do you love I do. New York I love City? Her. Do you like Absolutely. Anne Hathaway looking like a fool? Do you like she, Emily she, Blunt talking about eating a cube of cheese? Then this yes. movie is for you. I know it's totally for me. I just I don't know. I don't know what happened to me. I don't know what's happening to me. You're you're, you're too busy with you know. I'm sure something really productive. No, <laughs> she's on like the, I gotta be honest with you, Muff. Rewatch of like Inspector Morse or something. Oh yeah, I know for like the fifteenth time. I and I just always end up watching the Golden Girls again. It just is oh, right. It's so comforting. It's, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yes, in Cerulean. There was a crayon. Introduced by Crayola in 1990 was Cerulean. They had they got rid of eight colors and they brought in vivid tangerine, jungle green, cerulean, fuchsia, dandelion, teal blue, royal purple, and wild strawberry. It was a great addition. Those all of those colors yeah. are oh, winners. Yeah. yeah, they got rid of raw umber and orange. <laughs> yeah. No red one's and orange. Yeah, no one. No one's breaking hearts over that maze. They got rid of maze. No one's missing maze. Question four. Making blue fireworks is a tricky proposition and it requires adding which metallic element to the mix? Atomic number 29, popular electrical wiring, but only 2.5% of an American one cent piece. I, I just I just got it. 
in my brain box? Is it copper? It is copper. Woo! So, uh, you know, because of chemistry stuff that I don't really understand, when you uh, different elements release different colors during combustion. So mm. strontium is red, calcium is orange, sodium yellow, and barium is green. Um, but blue is very difficult to make. So a lot of times you're actually seeing like a sort of purpley blue when it's like mm. interesting. Yeah, interesting. I love that. I love stuff like that. Like how yeah, like cool. what color people added to glass to like make glass mm-hmm. different colors and like colors of fireworks. I love that stuff. And this is stuff that goes boom boom. So it's not easy to just experiment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Question five: A famed color matching system, which has been making design easier since 1963, named Classic Blue or number 19-4052 as the color of the year for 2020. Name the company devoted to consistent colors. I'm going to let Julia take this one. It's Pantone. It is. Mm. From the Greek, basically pan, meaning all, all colors. They have identified 1,867 solid colors to standardize shades on uncoated, coated, and matte papers. Hmm. A lot of colors. Nice. Much it's always than- fun when they announce. I don't. Re- I don't remember what the 2021 color of the year is. I actually just checked. It's a bright yellow and a very so- like sort of solid light gray. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was like, wah, wah. Yeah. and because 2020 sucked. Yeah. But uh, and everyone was disappointed with the 2021 one too because they're like, really, just blue. But it, honestly, they can't. They can never win. Like, there's never anything that everyone rallies around. Like, hooray! Finally, light purple. You know, like it just. <laughs> Ooh, ooh, maze. Yeah, maze. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to propose that raw umber is the, is the yeah, color yeah. for 2022, guys. So. Bur- burnt sienna. <laughs> or that I do like that there is a crayon that is titled mac and cheese. Yes, that's a good one. It's actually, it's quite accurate. I would agree. Yeah. Uh, question six. In the beloved Monty Python sketch about a dead parrot, what species was the bird claimed to be? He wasn't dead, of course, just merely pining for the fjords. I I have a guess. Jill, do you have a guess? What's your guess? My guess is macaw. I was going to say Norwegian blue. It is <laughs> Norwegian blue. Oh, good job, Jill. <laughs> pulled it out of nowhere. Nice Beautiful job. Plumage. Beautiful plumage. <laughs> yes, he is a Norwegian parrot. Uh, that sketch is actually from the eighth episode of their first season. It's very oh early classic God. Monty Python. I was actually going to try and get a Casablanca question out of this. So the mm-hmm. rival cafe to Rick's Cafe American is the Blue Parrot. And of course, we all know that Rick came to Casablanca for the waters, but he was misinformed. <gasps> wow, you really brought that back. I got chills. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God. Wow. See, this is why you're on TV. Muffin. This is she's why. A, she, uh, she's a screenwriter and everything. Mm. There we go. Question seven. In which award-winning AMC TV show that ran for five years was the major product known as Blue Sky, Big Blue, Blue Magic, Frings Blue? I got this one, Lauren. Oh, okay. Yeah, please take it because I put three question marks. This is breaking bad. It is. Their meth was blue. Uh, And in the very final scene of the series, the baby blue by Badfinger plays. So that's, oh, oh, my blue meth. I love you, my blue meth. It's Josh's favorite favorite show so even oh, despite okay. that makes me sense. only have ever seen like three episodes total because it's a little too violent for me for my I, I agree um mm-hmm. but he's shown me a couple episodes that i would like and i have i have enjoyed them and i uh, i appreciate the the cinematic quality <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and also the tips on how to make meth i'm sure you, you yeah know, absolutely file that away for later yeah. <laughs> every time i have to go buy sudafed and like i have to give him my like my driver's license twice a year to, for my bi-yearly, you know, sinus yeah. infections. I'm like, oh, I guess you guys are going to put me on the meth list now. Yeah. <laughs> wink and wink. like, sometimes the pharmacist laughs and sometimes they don't. Yeah. <laughs> you have to gauge your audience. You should twitch oh, no. a little and scratch yourself while saying yeah. that. <laughs> really, really see what happens next time. Yeah, Pull out a clump s- of hair. Yeah, sell it, right? <laughs> Question eight. Elvis Presley covered and made a hit out of the song Blue Suede Shoes. However, it was written by and first recorded by which other performer often called the King of Rockabilly. He was part of the Million Dollar Quartet with Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash. Hmm. I I have a guess and I, I'm pretty sure I'm wrong. What's your guess? 
My guess is Roy Orbison, but he wasn't really rockabilly. He was okay. more like country rock, I think. Um, I was thinking Buddy Holly. Ooh, Buddy Holly's a good guess. But yeah, that's just a guess. Um, I would go with Buddy Holly over Roy Orbison for sure. Okay. All right. That's our answer, Ruffy. That's our answer. Okay. No. (laughs) (laughs) It was Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins? And he is, uh, you know, I think the Beatles covered a couple of his songs. He was one of those sort of, like, sort of proto-rock. Yeah. So, yeah, the Million Dollar Quartet was an impromptu jam session between these four incredibly talented guys. Um, And Blue Suede Shoes, it was, uh, Perkins actually was playing somewhere and he saw a guy on the dance floor, like, rebuke his partner for, like, basically stepping on his shoes. And that's where the song came from. Uh-huh. The guy was like, like, oh, you can dance, baby, but don't, don't, don't mess with the shoes. <laughs> Watch the kicks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, question nine. Forever in blue jeans. The word denim comes from the French town of Nîmes. But the durable fabric was especially popular with sailors from which northwestern Italian port city famed for pesto salami and Christopher Columbus? I'll let my uh, paisana. Oh, really? Uh, tu paisana. Na- no na- na- name, a sol- name a kind of salami. Yeah, what's your salami, Lauren? Oh, Genoa. <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> of course, uh, Muffy knows me. Muffy knows that she can be like, no, Lauren, name your meats. <laughs> I don't think, think about, about your actual- meats. Don't think, don't worry about like, geography. Just be like, I know salami. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And that's the way to get it because I was like, I was trying to envision the boot and like, where is it? Is it at like the knee? No, Lauren, <laughs> it's the salami. Go with the salami every time. Got it. Yeah. So there were a lot of sailors from Genoa. They would wear these blue jeans. And so the French name for the city was Jean. So it became jeans. Um, <laughs> there is a, there are actually 17th century paintings of uh, poor people, like peasants, in blue denim garments. I mean, you can see like the sort of frayed white part of like the white threads yeah. and the blue threads by a painter who is unknown and is known only as the master of the blue jeans. Oh wow! Yeah, so they uh, it's quite an old fabric, but has only become sort of funky in more recent years. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and question 10, what marine bird with distinctive feet is native to the tropical regions of the Eastern Pacific Ocean, ranging from the Gulf of California to Peru? This slightly embarrassing name is probably derived from a Spanish word meaning stupid. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a blue-footed booby right there. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so the males lift their little feet up and down in a mating dance, and like the bluer the feet, I guess, the, the hunkier the bird. Oh uh, boy, yeah. That, but they are supposedly very gullible and easily caught. So they have the name Bobo, meaning stupid was probably what led to booby. <laughs> I say, poor little guys. I know. They're just, they're just stylish. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. Right? Sure. Don't step on their blue suede shoes, baby. Exactly. <laughs> what a fantastic quiz. Thank you, Buffy. Great Thank quiz. you so much Thank for you, coming Muffy. on and for teaching us all about Ulysses S. Grant. And I... I the quiz I, uh, was fantastic. I, I, held, I, held my, I held my I held myself back a bit. I could have this could have been like four times as long because I'd be like, "Well, when he had sandwiches, no, I wouldn't." <laughs> you really could have gotten super granular on this. Yeah, I could have written three hundred and thirty thousand. Super words. granular. Heyo! High five. <laughs> there she goes. Love it. Um, thank you so much, Muffy. Is there anything that you would like to plug on our vast-reaching show? <laughs> Well, I would. Uh, you can see me uh, 4 p.m. weekdays on Game Show Network's Masterminds, for the most part. There's some episodes I'm not in. Um, and uh, yeah, catch my trivia stylings on the TV. And uh, that's about it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's that's great. I mean, you are a, you are a regular on a game show. That's more than a lot of people can say. That's so. true. You know, I'd say uh, the fact that I'm named Muffy and willing to clap a lot has really served me well in that regard. <laughs> you know, the public are, you know, they're easily, uh, you know, easily entertained. And yeah, uh, yeah. if you find your niche, who cares? Yeah. And you have, you have a mouse named after you, I hear. I yes. do have a mouse named after me. Um, two boys uh, named their pet mouse Muffy Morocco. She even got her own stocking at Christmas. I'm just saying. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and there was, a, a, there was also a foster kitten named Muffy in my honor. Oh. So I hope the foster kitten... And the mouse do not meet. <laughs> <laughs> that would be 
tragic. <laughs> but really, my life's goal, which we're working towards, is I want a panda named after me. <sighs> oh yeah, I bet that'll happen. That's okay. gotta happen for you. Did I you ever get to? It. Did you ever get to meet a panda? I did get to meet a panda. <gasps> I went in 2018. I used my winnings from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Went to China, sat with a panda, fed fed carrots to a panda, cleaned up oh a panda's God. pen. Wow. You really got the full experience. I sure did from, from feeding to the other side. <laughs> yeah. You really went through the entire gastrointestinal system of a panda. <laughs> but I, I had a student who taught me to say, I love you, panda, in Chinese. And so I'm sitting next to the panda just going, well, I need show mouth. As if the panda knows it is. <laughs> like... I mean, you never know, you but know. I was, I was fangirling. It was, you know, it was just it was yeah, a moment. Yeah. <sighs> it's the That's dream. That's wonderful. That's the dream. Say, You're I'll living the dream, Muffy. Yeah. Please, please send us a picture. Wait, hold, on. hold on, wait. I can do it. Wait, I can do it in the chat right now. Hold on. Can I? <laughs> yeah, I bet you could. It's coming through. This is one of my photos of me with my pants. <laughs> oh my God. Look at how excited you are. You, <laughs> you are you are beside yourself in it was, this well, you like, smiling. You come in and you, yeah you had to be very quiet and yeah. oh yeah of course and so I'm just like why me and then I look and he's got this perfect round just like little pom pom of an ear and I just went <laughs> <laughs> quiet, quiet, quiet. it just bursts comes right out of you like, <laughs> yeah it's like a little teddy bear oh my god oh, it's adorable that's a great photo I know that was my that was my my winnings with my my game show monies hey it's worth it totally worth it well thank you muffy we totally appreciate it you are welcome back on the show honestly anytime you want we'd be more than happy to listen to you talk about shoot anything anything. okay frankly that'll be my topic next time anything (laughs) Anything. here we run the gamut (laughs) (laughs) and this is a quiz about something yeah uh, and thank you everybody for listening. Definitely make sure that if you have access to the game show network, check out Muffy on masterminds. She's phenomenal. Better than everybody else. I'm going to say, I'm going re- to put a reach out and just say that. Um, and, uh, also you all should know that pff, you are going to get to play trivia with us again very soon. So, uh, keep an eye out for that. If you want to join maybe a museum, sponsored trivia night with prizes hosted by yours truly and uh my inimitable co-host julia uh so keep an eye out for that on our social meds uh at uh miss infopod on twitter and our facebook page so keep an eye out for that and uh, we would love to see you there yes so thanks again (laughs) and we'll catch you next time Bye. bye